So this morning is our third week in our sermon series for this fall, Room to Grow. Uh, if you have your Bible or your touchpad or your telephone, uh, however you would like to, uh, you can get to Acts chapter 2. Uh, the passage will also be on the screen in just a couple minutes. We're going to be looking at verses 42 through 47. Uh, needless to say, we live in a very public world with what social media has been able to accomplish. Uh, something could happen in Kirkwood in the next 10 minutes, and if it was profound enough, it could actually be known all around the world within the next half an hour. Uh, that's the world in which we live. Uh, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture this morning that is talking about the public life of disciples of Jesus, the observable life and worship of, of disciples in Jesus. And the question is, what do folks see when they observe those things or those activities or that mindset uh, in our lives? So the fact that everything can be so public can be a really good thing or it can maybe be a negative thing. Uh, how many of you remember the ice bucket challenge that took place about three or four years ago? Remember the ice bucket challenge? Do you remember that Green Tree actually participated in the ice bucket challenge? So in case you weren't here or in case you've forgotten, watch the screen for just a minute. We want to remind you about this. We should do an auction to see who gets to dump on his head. Oh, no, no, no. We've been talking about this all week. <laughs> this is the best day of my life. <laughs> Are you sure you want to sit that close? So I have the privilege of working on church planting in our denomination all over the country. So I'm going to call out the guys that are on my church planting team. So I'm Steve, I'm going to look at your camera. So Tom Melton, Mike Moses, Jack Cathy, Sean Robinson, Pat Rackett, Pat McElroy, Matt Brown, and Bart Garrett. You guys are all called out on this, okay? All right. Take my shoes off? Yeah. Take my name tag off? I'm not taking my shirt off. That ain't happening. Nobody would come back next week. All right. Now lay in the middle. Don't fit. Don't fit. Oh, crazy. That was so much fun for Mike Dinkoff. He just had, had such a great time. He enjoyed, I think he enjoyed it almost as much this morning. He was in the 930, sort of sitting right over there, and he, was, he had a big smile on his face. So uh, the Ice Bucket Challenge all over the United States actually raised over $110,000 for the research and study of, of ALS. And some breakthroughs have been happening because those funds were directed towards the study of Lou Gehrig's disease and hopefully someday a cure for that. So there's a great example of a wonderful way in which uh, something public was very, very helpful to, you know, to our entire society. There are other times when you use social media that it doesn't quite work out that well and it ends up being kind of a, a negative thing. So uh, some of
of you maybe have a Facebook page. Maybe a lot of you have a Facebook page. That, there's a picture of my Facebook page. And when I first started using Facebook page, I didn't really understand how it works. And so I, I didn't do things exactly right. And my, our daughter uh, had moved to Hawaii and she was dating now her husband, Richard. They were dating. And every time I looked at Katie's Facebook page, uh, she had a picture of Richard. Now, Richard's 6'4". Uh, Richard probably has, I don't know, point zero 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 one percent of body fat. When, when, when Richard was a junior in college, he won the Mr. Charleston competition, okay? This, this guy is just absolutely ripped. And every time I would look at a picture of Katie and Richard or Richard on Katie's Facebook page, they were at the beach or they were going to the beach or they were frolicking on the beach or they were coming home from the beach and Richard never wore a shirt. Now, if I looked like Richard, I wouldn't be wearing a shirt right now. I mean, it, he's, he's that buff, right? Okay. I thought I was sending a message to Katie. But do you know what posting on someone's Facebook page actually means? It means that everybody gets to see it, right? So I thought I was sending Katie a private message which read, does your boyfriend own any shirts? I thought that was a fair question, right? Almost immediately... Her Facebook page starts going off with her friends from college and her friends from high school. Oh, your dad got you so bad. Oh, my gosh, that's <laughs> unbelievable. And I got a phone call. <laughs> Didn't even have to hold it up to my ear. I could hold it out there before they even had speakers on cell phones and hear exactly what I had done wrong. Sometimes <laughs> going public isn't all that good of a thing, right? Our faith is on public display. And that's by God's design. God's intention is that people can experience his presence and his grace as they observe and as they interact with disciples of Jesus. The question is, what will people see in your life and in my life? What will people see in your worship and in my worship when they look at us either collectively as a congregation or they look at us individually as disciples of Jesus. That's what we want to tackle this morning in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Uh, it's speaking about, the context here is it's speaking about the very first group of Christians. So these are folks that, that either saw Jesus while he was on earth or have become Christians very recently after he ascended to heaven. The book of Acts starts with Jesus ascending into heaven. And so this is a kind of a, a historical book that gives us some good understanding of the very first Christians. Hear the word of God. Speaking about these disciples, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you this morning for your grace and your mercy to us. 
Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and our minds this morning as we study your word. Lord, we're not here to listen to my words. Father, we need your eternal word to bring its light into our hearts and our minds. Father, we pray that you would teach us this morning. Father, we live in a very public world, and you have designed the the community of disciples to be a public community, to welcome any and all, to come and see what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. And while that causes us to want to celebrate and to rejoice, it also perhaps causes us some pause. Uh, What will people see when they see us? And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would teach us, that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds with your eternal truth. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to learn and understand and apply this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me go down a very brief side road for just a second before we dive into this text. It's important that we understand that the book of Acts is an historical narrative of the early church. Uh, Its intention is to be descriptive, to tell us what happened and to give us a little bit of background into why it happened. But it's different from a book like the very next book that follows Acts is the book of Romans, which was the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the Christians in Rome. And that letter, that book of the Bible is prescriptive. It gives direction on how we ought to follow Christ on what our theology should be and how we should be active disciples of the Lord Jesus, which is different than the book of Acts. The book of Acts, the genre is history, and it's telling us what happened. But it's not saying, now you must live exactly the way the disciples in Acts lived. You must do exactly what they did. We know it doesn't mean that, because if it does mean that, from just these few verses here this morning, we all have to move to Jerusalem. Because these disciples met in the temple and in houses in Jerusalem, and if that's the only way to do it, then we're in the wrong place, okay? So I think you get the understanding here. We want to gather and learn the truth that is here, but we want to be careful not to interpret the book of Acts in an inappropriate way. So we're going to kind of be looking behind the action, so to speak, to see what the truth is and how it impacted their lives and how it can therefore instruct us this morning in the way in which we live. I have five observations about this text. The first one is this, that when people look at us, when they look at our lives, when they look at our worship, they ought to see heart, mind, and soul. Look at verse 42. And they, the disciples, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now notice that word devoted. That's an important word, right? It carries some weight with it. The fact that they were devoted to this means it wasn't just kind of a casual observation. It didn't mean that every once in a while they might decide to go, hey, I think Peter might have a good sermon this Sunday. Why don't we go listen and see what he has to say? They were committed to intellectual growth, right? This is the mind part of it. Our faith on some level is always intellectual. And so it's important that we commit ourselves as well, that we devote ourselves to the apostles' 
teaching to understand what the Word of God says. So let's just say, for example, that a couple years ago, a friend came up to you and said, you know what? Uh, we've been married a little while, and we're struggling in our marriage, and, and we know you're a Christian, and we know that, that, that Christians believe in the Bible. Can you tell us some things that the Bible says about marriage? And let's say that they kind of caught you flat-footed, and you hadn't studied those passages, and you said something along the lines of, you know what? Let me, let me go check with one of the pastors, and I'll get back to you. Okay, and you went and talked with Daryl, or you found Corbett, or you came to me and Eric and, and asked a question, and we, we helped you with that, and you went back and you gave the answer. That was two years ago. Let's say that last week you had a similar conversation, but with a different friend, but the exact same question. You know, we're struggling in our marriage. What does the Bible say about it? It's not okay if two years later you don't know the answer to that question. That, that's not all right. It means that, you're, that there's some gap between your understanding of your faith and the application thereof. It's not the unpardonable sin. You're not a terrible person, if that describes you. But we ought to all sit up and pay attention to the fact that the early church spent a lot of time in the Word of God, studying so that their minds were committed to the Lordship of Christ. Faith, some portion of it, is intellectual, but also faith is relational. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That simply means building relationships building friendships, that they weren't casual and just kind of passed each other on the street and said, hi, how you doing? And kept on walking. But they actually spent time together. They cared for one another. They got to know one another. They developed community in the most genuine sense of the word. And part of what the world should see if they, if they happen by here on a Sunday morning or, or another time during the week when we're gathered for, for some event tonight, we're going to get together and kind of continue the, the conversation about biblical justice and mercy. We're going to, if the weather's nice enough, we're going to sit outside. If not, we'll be in here. But if somebody wanders by and plops down and sits with us, they ought to hear deep relational love for one another. They ought to see that. Also, this passage, this verse says that faith is not only intellectual and relational, but it's also worship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. That's a, that's a statement about the Lord's Supper and the prayers. It meant when they got together, some amount of their time was devoted directly to the worship of God, directly to his praise and, and to giving thanks to him. When the world sees us, the display that God has, has, has given to the world is the church. And some part of that ought to see heart and mind and soul that is devoted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the world ought to be able to observe the power of God. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, if you read on in the book of Acts, you see that there are some healings. You see that there are times when people uh, are, are freed from evil spirits. There are different times when Jesus's earthly ministry and the power that Jesus had in his earthly ministry was transferred to the apostles and they continued that on. Why did God give that power to the apostles? And notice it's not to the disciples. It's specifically to the apostles, to the 11, minus, you know, 12 minus Judas, and then eventually the apostle Paul becomes the, the other apostle. Why is this authority given to them? It's given to them to affirm that the message of Jesus was authoritative. Jesus spoke in an authoritative way. When he was on earth, people would, were wondering whether he had the right to speak that way. And one of the ways he demonstrated his right to speak that way was through miraculous signs. And so God's power was on demonstration in the early church. Now, this, this authority is not passed on to pastors. I don't have apostolic authority in this sense 
of the word. Neither do the elders of this church. But the apostolic authority that by, by God's power, the demonstration of God's power is still working in his church. Now, if you want to know what Jesus thought was the most miraculous thing in all the world, wouldn't that be nice to know of all the miracles that Jesus performed, which one did he think was the very best? Well, I think we actually know because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus speaks to this question, right? He's teaching in a room. There are probably about this many people, maybe more. Uh, he's in a home and it's a big, big place. There's dozens and dozens of folks gathered around, including religious leaders. And he's teaching them a lot of things and he's speaking with authority. And a lot of the religious leaders are kind of thinking, although they're too polite to say it out loud, who does he think he is? Well, all of a sudden, there's a, there's a hole that's opened up in the roof, and these guys who have brought their friend to Jesus lower their friend down through the roof. And he's on a mat, right? He's on a stretcher, and he's on a stretcher because he is paralyzed from the waist down. He can't walk. And he drops in front of Jesus, and everybody's quiet. Now they're looking at Jesus, and they expect him to say, get up and walk. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you want to know what the most impossible thing for a human to do in the world, it's to, with authority of God, forgive you your sins. There isn't a person in the world that can do that. There's no pastor, there's no priest, there's no, there's no monk, there's no anybody had, that has the authority of God to forgive your sins. Only God can forgive your sins, period, and a paragraph. That's what Scripture says, very clear, Right? So now Jesus says your sins are forgiven. The religious guys are going, hold on a second, time out. Nobody has authority to do this, right? And, and they're going down the right trail, but with the wrong guy. <laughs> so Jesus understands what they're thinking, and he looks at him, and he says, let me ask you a question. What's easier to do? To say, son, your sins are forgiven, and actually accomplish that, right? Or to say, get up and walk. And then he says this, but so you'll know that I can do the most miraculous thing that could ever possibly happen to any of you, which is forgive your sins. Hey, do me a favor and get up and get out of here. And the guy gets up and he walks out, right? What Jesus thinks is miraculous is that a sinner like you could be forgiven. What Jesus thinks is truly astounding and where he puts his weight and his, and his life and his ministry is the fact that somebody like me could actually experience his grace and his mercy. The power of God is very active in the life of the church today. And people ought to see and observe this power of God. Thirdly, not only should they see our heart and mind and soul committed to the Lordship of Christ and observe the power of God, but they ought to be able to take note of generosity and care. Look at verse 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What was taking place here was a genuine transformation of heart, right? These folks just didn't happen to be generous. They actually were generous beyond anything that most people had seen. They actually divested themselves. They actually, they actually uh, spent their time uh, getting their savings accounts and, and getting rid of them so that other folks could have things if there were a need. This generosity is a generosity that's really actually astounding. There's an active compassion for the needy that goes beyond the norm, goes way beyond the norm. Simon Kitzmacher, a wonderful theologian and scholar, wrote this about these verses. He said this, After Pentecost, the new converts in Jerusalem shared all things. They began to sell their possessions and goods, and they gave to anyone who might be in need. 
The communal sharing of material goods was not a divestment of wealth. I just used that word. He says it was not a divestment of wealth. Rather, it was a willingness on the part of the owners to place their possessions at the disposal of all those believers who were needy. And I love this last sentence. I really wish I had written this sentence. It's a great sentence. The aim of the early Christians was to abolish poverty so that the needy persons as a class of people were no longer among them. That's a supernatural generosity. That is a supernatural care for those who are in need, not only of spiritual grace, but of material and physical help. And that's what the gospel does in our lives. And so people ought to see that generosity at work. Uh, the offering that we received this morning has actually been in the, in the, in the conversation and the planning stages among our leadership for a little bit now. Rich and his team did a, an amazing job this last, uh, last spring of doing a lot of great research. But they brought this idea to the session in June at our, at our meeting. And when we met as elders, we realized that, you know, we wanted to take an offering. But the way the schedule was kind of working, it wouldn't happen until late September. Uh, but school started a month ago, right? And so these children have to be in school. They've got to know the money's there. So what the session said was, you know, before we take the offering, before we receive a penny, we have a ton, you know, we have, we have I don't know, like $400,000 in savings. T- send $10,000 over there. Right? Just go ahead and give them the money. Why? Because we know that God is going to be generous and he's going to, he's going to get that $10,000, right? That's going to happen whenever, whatever Sunday it is. So before we ever received the offering, we gave the $10,000. And I know that probably the most important thing Rich said this morning was you can rest assured that when the overage, with the overage we have, it will stay in this fund and it will be used for the purposes that they were intended, right? I know there's going to be more than $10,000. Why? Because the spirit of God's generosity is in this place because it's in your heart. It's in my heart as disciples of Jesus. Does it need to continue to grow? Absolutely. Do I need to be more generous than I am today? No question about it. But I am confident that the Spirit of God is at work in His people all the way down to our youngest children to understand the, the opportunity to give. Why? Because Christ gave to us. Because Jesus gave Him His very life so that we could be saved. And the world should take note. They should be able to observe this generosity. Not that they will pat us on the back, but that they will begin to ask more and more questions about the grace and the mercy and the glory of the Lord Jesus. Fourthly, Not only should they take note of our generosity and care that is given to us by the Spirit of God, but they ought to see a wit, they ought to witness consistent joy. They ought to witness consistent joy. And day after day, attending the temple, verse 46 says, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. If you've ever visited a church that wasn't your church home, and I do this every once in a while uh, while we're on vacation, I'll go to a church that I I don't know anybody. If you've ever had that experience, you might have had that this morning where you walked in and and you didn't know anyone. Uh, Some churches give off a tone of friendliness. Some churches give off a tone of aloofness. Some churches give off a tone of uh, caring for each other or not really caring for each other. Every congregation kind of has a tone about it, but the tone of any believing community is important and it must always, and it should always be, and if the Spirit of God is present, it always will be joy. 
Now, brothers and sisters, let's be careful here. Joy does not mean the absence of struggle. Joy does not mean that there will be no problems in your life. Joy does not mean that you're just happy and giddy despite your circumstances, which are screaming that you ought to be somber and and concerned over your present circumstances or situations. That is not the definition of biblical joy. It speaks to the ripple effect of the love of Christ in our lives, which leads to things like contentment when that's probably the last thing that we should feel. When there's a peace in our hearts that we can't even begin to explain. When there's a hope when everything else around us seems so hopeless. And there's a kindness that we share with one another when we would tend to be harsh and argumentative. It's the life of the community of disciples that's impacted by the grace of God. And it does, joy does not mean there's a smile on your face. Joy means that the spirit of God is present in any circumstance and in every circumstance. A lot of you know, uh, I have a very good friend who's been kind of a lifelong adult friend whose name is Chuck Nieder. Chuck has three sons, Adam, Josh, and Luke, who are now all in their 40s, which is hard to believe. I've known all of them since they were little boys. And the middle son, Joshua, uh, two Saturdays ago, dropped dead of a heart attack in his apartment. And there's no explanation for why a 42-year-old in in seemingly pretty good health uh, has that happen. Uh, I've spent the last couple weeks on the phone and texting and emailing and talking. Uh, I actually went down to be with Chuck in Nashville. Uh, he had to go to Nashville to identify Joshua because they, they don't live there. And, uh, but the memorial service was yesterday and I couldn't go. It was on Lookout Mountain and I had a wedding here yesterday. So I had to fulfill my commitment uh, to that family and did so gladly. We had a, we had a wonderful time yesterday afternoon. So uh, this is not about... Uh, missing. But there, I, I was divided all day long. And I got a text last night about 1030 from Amy, uh, Amy Trainer, who's a lifelong friend. She's been involved in, in uh, this conference and we all know each other. And, and uh, she writes to me, she says, okay, it honestly never crossed my mind to take any pics today. It wouldn't have been right. But the, whoops, but the time, this is the first time I've ever used my phone in a sermon, by the way. Um, but the time celebrating Josh was rich and wrenching, hilarious, beautiful, raw, and loving. I am absolutely exhausted. Just got back from Kristen's house 30 minutes ago. Haven't been able to check in with Chuck. Anyway, hardly worth sending this. She sent me a picture because most didn't turn out, but this is one pic of Greg and Bennett. It's from last night at David's cabin. Lots of good laughter, reconnecting with old friends, and celebrating, uh, celebrating juice. That was his, Josh's nickname was Juice. That's joy. Not, not happy. Nothing happy about it. But it is joy. It is the presence of the Spirit of God among the people of God that is observable. It's palpable. You can feel it. And it's one of the things that causes the light to shine in the darkness. And notice the consistency of this, that it's day by day. It's in the temple publicly, and it's in homes collectively together. It's a consistent display of the grace of God for all to witness. So I mentioned I had a wedding yesterday. Uh, I was coming in Friday afternoon for the rehearsal, and there was a couple standing in the lobby, 
And I was kind of running in here to get organized. So I didn't stop to talk to them, but they were with the wedding party. They were folks I didn't know. And they were looking at this card and we handed this out last week. There, there's still some out in the, in the lot, in the atrium, if you want to get one, but it's called practicing hospitality and it has 10 things about practicing hospitality because we want to be a warm and welcoming church. And the guy's holding it, but they're kind of looking at it together. And he says, man, these people are really serious about being friendly, right? And she doesn't blink an eye. She doesn't miss a beat. She says, if they were serious about it, they wouldn't have to have a handout. (laughs) And you know what the answer to that is? Although I didn't stop and say it, the answer is yes. It's exactly right. The spirit of God is in this place. It is a friendly spirit and we need to grow more and more into it, right? It's both of those things at the same time. And that's the beauty of our relationship with Christ, because he doesn't leave us where we are. He calls us to a life of following him and trusting him and loving him and allowing that to be public. Not that people are going to see we're perfect because they're not going to see, but they're going to see in our brokenness and in our, in our kind of two steps forward, one step back relationship with the Lord Jesus, they're going to see the spirit of God present. And they're going to see it in things like a joy that perhaps is not easy to explain, which leads to my last observation, really the application of this text, and it's this. As people see us, they ought to understand that there is room to grow, and that room to grow means there's room for them in the kingdom of God, that this is not just us about ourselves, but it's about us together understanding what's God's intention. What is God's intention? And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. No one's ever been saved by Tom Ricks. No one's ever been saved by anybody in this room that shared their faith with someone else. If someone has come to faith after a sermon that I've preached, it's because the power of God was at work in their lives. And he was the one that does the redeeming. Note that verse carefully. It is the Lord who adds to our number. But the part of the way he goes about his work is through your life and through my life, individually as well as collectively, all of the time, day by day, everywhere, anywhere that you or I or family anyone who believes it is God's intention, it is God's plan, and it is God's purpose that our lives and our worship of Jesus as his disciples have been designed to bring about growth. People will see our lives. People will see our worship. By God's grace and by God's power, May that create within them a desire to know him because his intention for his kingdom is that there is always room to grow. That's not the question. The question is, is that your intention and my intention as well? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are always growing your kingdom. Thank you that if we look carefully, we see your power. We see your beauty, we see your generosity, we see the joy that you give us in moments of laughter and celebration and in moments of of sadness and brokenness. Father, all of this is by your plan. You don't intend for our faith to be private, to be hidden. You intend for it to be on display for the world. For those who are asking, is there a God? Could he possibly love me? Is there any room at the table for someone like me? So, Father... Give us hearts that truly embrace room to grow, that we would be 
your agents, vessels through which your spirit and your love flow so that others would come to know Christ and that our, our fellowship and our communion would be richer this side of heaven until the day we see you. In Christ's name, amen.